What a beautiful day to look at Genesis chapter 1 together and to consider the creation account uh, this, together this morning. I'm excited to be back in the book of Genesis this morning. Last week we started into our series and we looked at the whole book together. And uh, we looked especially at the original context of the book of Genesis. The original context of Genesis included a study of the author, Moses, and his original readers. And I suggested that Moses wrote most of this book. Perhaps he had some help with the account about his death at the end. Uh, someone like Joshua fills in that piece at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, but Moses composes not only the Pentateuch, but the whole book of Genesis. And he arranges this book around a creation account, the, the creation account, and around 10 family stories uh, that are woven into to encourage the Israelite people who are preparing to enter the promised land. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the, um, the, the account of the origins there of creation. We'll take about a half hour to work through this passage together. Uh, I, I'm sure that Moses was concerned that the people of Israel would have a lasting record of this important event. No doubt they were already being influenced by accounts of the beginnings from other people. For instance, as they were wandering around in the Sinai Peninsula, just to their west was the country of Egypt. As a matter of fact, the children of Israel had just spent 400 years among these people and it even brought a mixed multitude of non-Israelite people with them uh, out into the wilderness. Well, for Egypt, there was a pantheon of gods who existed in the beginning. They worshiped the sun god, the moon god, and the gods among the stars. Some Egyptians believed that there was a certain god by the name of Atom, who was responsible for fathering the atmosphere, earth and sky through a hideous, immoral act. I won't even begin to tell you the story, it's gross. But these Egyptian gods, all of them were wicked and false. And so Moses did not want any covenant community member of Israel to believe in those sort of gods, those fake gods. Perhaps Moses was also concerned about the influence of the large nation just to the east of the Israelites in the wilderness, the Babylonians. The Israelites themselves had a history with the Babylonians. Perhaps you remember this from the book of Genesis that Abraham, from which the Israelite people come, himself was from Babylon originally. He grew up not too far away from the spot where the Babylonians tried to build a tower up into the heavens. Well, the Babylonian account of origins is found in the story uh, that they have written called Enuma Elish. This story was designed to promote the Babylonian people, their cities, and the worship of their gods, including one very important god for them by the name of Marduk. Marduk was the champion of the gods. He was the offspring himself of two other gods, but Marduk defeats a goddess by the name of Tiamat in this story, Enuma Elish. And after defeating this goddess Tiamat, he splits her in half with a, a battle ax and he uses half of her carcass to form the earth and he spreads out the other half of the carcass to form the heavens. That's a Babylonian story of the origins. Babylonian tradition 
sees the creation of men and women as an afterthought in creation, a device to relieve the gods uh, from their work and to provide food for them. You see, their gods have become weary from all of their work, so they create men and women as slave beings to take the load off of themselves. These Babylonian fake gods were self-serving and violent, and I'm sure Moses didn't want any Israelite being influenced by the Babylonian accounts of the origins of the world. To the north, the Israelites were soon to hear Canaanite tales of creation as well. In these Canaanite tales, the gods engage in a grisly war with large sea creatures called Leviathan or sea dragons, and they narrowly defeat them. You see, the Canaanites, their gods can narrowly defeat Leviathan and sea dragons. Interestingly, Moses uses the exact same word for these creatures in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 21. We're going to read today. It's translated by the ESV as large sea creatures, but far from rivaling the true God of the universe, these, these large sea creatures submit to him. And so as I consider Genesis chapter 1 and its original setting, I think Moses writes this to prevent the Israelites from believing false views. Mo Moses compose, composes this concise, magnificent, and lasting written account of creation for them. And Moses' unique account, I think, not only assaults rival views of creation, but it also presents God as the hero of creation. In every section of this creation account that I read, God, the gracious sovereign hero, is the main character. He's the subject. And so my outline is very simple today from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. I've got God doing three things. God forms, God fills, and then God rests. God forms, he fills, and then he rests. And so we start in the very beginning, back in Genesis 1.1, and, and really in the first 13 verses, we learn that God forms things. Verses 1 through 5, he forms the light. It all starts on day one of creation. Let's look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the, that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Here's a, as an account of day one of creation, God forms the light. The first subject in your Bible is the word God, Elohim. The first verb is something only he does in scripture. Creates, it's the word bara. That word is used, the Hebrew word bara is used of no other being. God is the only being who creates in scripture. And the object of his creation in verse one is the heaven and the earth. Now, while some people wanna put a gap between verses one and two or even others between verses two and three, I think it's better to read all these verses sequentially as according or happening on day one. What people struggle with, I think, in the, the very early verses of Genesis is, uh, at least what one area where they struggle is, uh, 
what it says in verse 2 about the earth being without form and void. You see that in your Bible, without form and void. Some people believe that these are negative descriptions that must mean that the earth was somehow suffering under God's condemnation or curse for something previous to the creating of light. Scholars introduce all kinds of different reasons and justifications for this sort of thing. In my view, however, I think Moses is describing the temporary condition of earth on day one. That's how I take this. The temporary condition on day one as being formless and unfilled, empty, to organize his reports of what God does with the heavens and the earth from days one through six of creation. In other words, if you're looking at verse two in your Bible, these two words are important, without form and void. They come from two words. And I think since the earth was temporarily on day one, unformed, God forms or fashions it in day one through three of creation. See, it's, it's unformed, so God forms it. Day one through three. And then days four through six, since the earth is unfilled, it is empty, God fills it in days four through six. Okay, so you got that? It's unformed and unfilled. God forms and God fills. Days one through three, days four through six. And that's what we're gonna see throughout the sermon today. I think we can get a hint about God is doing something spectacular here right away in your Bible in verse 2. When we read something very mysterious, we read the Spirit was hovering over this unformed and unfilled earth. I think this is a reference to the Spirit of God. He is moving back and forth over the face of the deep. The creative Holy Spirit is ready to do something. He's ready to form and to shape the world. And then God speaks in verse three to create the light and he calls the light day and the darkness night. God not only creates here without lifting a finger, he also demonstrates his dominion by naming things. Like what one commentator said in this passage, his name is Ellen Ross. And by the way, if you're looking for a good commentary in the book of Genesis, now it's about 700 pages, I warn you. But a good family commentary, you know, that can uh, hold a door open too. Uh, the commentary is called Creation and Blessing by Alan Ross. Alan Ross, when talking about the account of naming here, he says, he says this. He says, the account of naming in the Near East was an act of sovereign dominion. When you named something that indicated that you were an authority over that thing or that person. And so on day one, God creates the light. He calls it day and he names darkness night. This is day one of creation, one evening, one morning. Then we come to day two, when God forms something else. God forms an expanse, a heavenly expanse, the atmosphere over the earth and the sky, and then he separates the waters of the world. Look with me at verse six, day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. He names it heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. In most of these creation accounts, you have God speaking something into existence all throughout the creation narratives. 
And then you have a concluding fulfillment formula. You'll see this over and over again. It's translated by the ESV, and it was so. So God speaks, and it was so. Now, other gods among the Canaanites, fake gods among the Babylonians and Egyptians, they grew weary. They were defeated. And they could not fulfill all of the intentions of which they spoke, but not Moses' God, not the God of creation, not the true God of creation. He says it, and it's done. He is the sovereign God. There are no rivals to him. That's what happens on day two. God says it, and the skies and the waters take shape. Finally, on day three, God forms something else. He forms the land and land vegetation. Look with me at verse nine, there in your Bible. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God saw, said, uh, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Here in day three, God pulls back the waters to form, and, and these waters form around a large mass of land that he calls or names earth. Then he plants uh, or forms plants and fruit trees to prepare for the time when in days four through six, he will fill the sea and the heavens. He'll fill the heavens and the earth. And so it's in verse 14 that we transition from forming to filling. The second point of my outline is God fills, verses 14 through 31. As we go through the rest of this chapter, Moses' descriptions here will go from days four through six and they become more and more comprehensive. He has more and more things to say as he starts filling this created world in which you and I live. The filling begins in day four with God creating the sun, moon, and stars. Back in day one, God formed light. Now he fills with lights. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, this is a very interesting account to me in, in day four. Here, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Although I think the, the worship of the sun, moon, and stars was quite popular in Moses' day. It was popular, as we said already, among the Egyptians, for instance. Genesis pointedly avoids the normal Hebrew words for the sun and the moon. 
calls them the greater and the lesser light instead. I think Moses does this intentionally, lest the reader might be tempted to take these objects as divine beings. God created the lesser and greater light, doesn't even give them a name. He also reveals the purpose of these created objects in verses 14 and 15. And I think this is interesting too. Look in the middle of verse 14. And these things will be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And so they're objects. Sun ministers are objects that people will chart directions and dates off of. And in verse 15, it's a very interesting description here. He describes it this way. They're lights. These are lights to give light on the earth. If you're reading that part of verse 15 in the original, it's a play on words. It's kind of a funny little expression. It's, it's, it's syntax is even a little bit difficult to understand. So to help you get a feel for what I think the author is doing here, I just will point out a, a parallel sentence later on that Moses uses in the book of Numbers that has the same structure. Okay, so Numbers chapter 15, verse 39, Moses says this, it, and in that text, he's talking about the tassel on the bottom of a garment. It, the tassel shall be for, you ready for the profound statement? It, the tassel shall be for a tassel. That's like me saying the doorstop will be for a doorstop. That's really profound. But here in the passage, I think the point he's making is the lights will be for the lights. That's their purpose. He does not intend for any person to understand these heavenly bodies as rival deities. They are heavenly objects that God creates to perform normal, regular duties related to their substance. They are lights designed to be lights. And so that's what happens on, God, on, on day four. It was so. God saw that was good. This is day four. But then we move on to day five. Back on the second day, God had formed the waters in the sky. But now on day five, God fills them with sea creatures and birds. That's why I hold these things together in Genesis. Look with me at verse 20 to see God filling the sea and the air with sea creatures and birds. It says, and God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and the birds and let birds multiply in the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So far in this amazing, concise account of the story of creation, everything that God has been making has been inanimate, but now he creates animate things, animals, beings, and people. He starts by speaking into existence, small sea, sea creatures and birds in verse 20. But then in verse 21, he creates large sea creatures. These large sea creatures, that, that's the same word we used as well, you know, was used already as well in 
the Canaanite accounts of the dragons or leviathans that were rivaling their gods. But here God creates them and he uses, Moses uses the same word he used back in Genesis 1.1. We haven't seen it since Genesis 1.1. We're now in verse 21. God bara, God creates. This is the word reserved in the Bible for something only God can do. This is first act like this since verse one. He reserves it for animate beings. Added to this significant word bara then in verse 21, he adds another word that's important. Verse 22, the verb barak. God created, creates, and blesses. This is the first time the word blessed is found in your Bible. There is a creator-creature relationship between the God of creation and these creatures. The blessing of God here consists, I think, of, his, of their ability to, these animate beings to reproduce. And interestingly, what I noticed about this is from this point on in creation, we're in day five, if you've lost track. From this point on in creation every day, you're gonna see God creating and God blessing. There's a blessing statement given from this point on. And so we look for the next blessing statement in day six of creation, where God fills the land uh, with animals and humans. On day three, God formed the land. Now he fills it with animals and humans. Let's start the beginning of this account. This one's longer, day six, by looking at him, God making animals. Look at verse 24. It says, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its, its kind. And God saw that it was good. Here in these verses, we learn that God makes three different kinds of animals. They are beasts, domesticated animals, and all creeping things. Creeping things would include things like reptiles and mice and amphibians and snakes and any little thing that crawls on the ground stays close to the ground. But day six has two movements to it. And those two verses just represent the beginning of day six, the most significant movement. I think even the most significant movement of all of creation, the crowning moment of creation comes in the second part of this day when God makes humans. And so look in your Bible at verses 26 through 31. And I have some things I want to say about this part. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now you've done a really good job to follow through Genesis chapter one to this point. We're in the final part of day six of creation where God creates 
human beings to fill the earth. What I want to suggest to you is that this was the most significant created act of God in the beginning. There are several reasons why I see the creation of humanity as the most prominent pinnacle of God's created act. Let me give some of those to you. And we just read them, but I'll just point them out to you very briefly. First, here in this text at the beginning of verse 26, God breaks up his regular string of impersonal commands. These impersonal commands come in the form of the let there be statement. Let there be, let there be, let there be. And he, he breaks them up with a personal statement, let us make man. So just to see a few of these in your Bible, look, look at verse three. And God said, let there be light. Look at verse six, you there? And God said, let there be an expanse. Verse nine, look down in your Bible, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be. Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights. But when he comes to the creation of human beings, he says, let us, <coughs> personal statement, personal command here, let us make man. I think the creation of human beings and mankind is a crowning act of creation for another reason as well. Second, God includes here his contemplation, I think, with other members of the Godhead, demonstrating the full commitment of the divine being to make this special creation of man and woman. And so we're back in verse 26 again, and it says, let us. Some, some scholars and commentators take us as a reference to God plus a heavenly council of angels. But it's not clear to me at all how human beings are created in the image and likeness of angels. But in, in light of what God said about the Spirit of God in verse 2, hovering over the waters, I think it's best to see here him referring to the Spirit as a co-participant in the, created, the, the creation of human beings. There are other texts in the Old and New Testament that talk about the, the Holy Spirit of God being active in creation. There are texts as well that talk in the New Testament about Jesus Christ the sun being active in creation as well. I think let us is a reference potentially to the contemplation of the Godhead as they were considering making human beings in their likeness. I think that points to the pinnacle of creation, the creation of men and women. Third, I would add to this, instead of creation being after their kind, you, you got that all throughout here, right? There were plants and fruit trees and there were animals, different types of animals and sea creatures, and they're all reproducing after their kind. Okay, but here that statement is not given about humanity. It's after his likeness, or really after our likeness, the text says in reference to the Godhead. One commentator said it this way. I think he just had a great way of saying this. He says, just as powerful earthly kings to indicate their claim uh, to dominion, erect an image of themselves in the provinces of their empire where they do not personally appear. Of course, not with God, he, he appears everywhere. But he says, so man is placed upon earth in God's image after his likeness to exercise dominion over this world. 
So for human beings, we're not created after the kind of any other human being. We're created after the likeness of God in his image as a representative to, to exercise dominion in this world. But continuing on, I see another significant indication of the fact that this is a pinnacle here of the created act when he combines that formula again that he's used before, bara, barak, create blessing. The creation blessing statement is found in verse 27 and 28. And in your Bibles, when you get down to verse 27, you come to this place in your English Bibles, it's set out a little bit different from the rest of the text, if your Bible's like mine. That's because in verse 27, down in your Bible, what you see is a poem. It's a poem created to describe the creation of humanity. And three times in that poem, the word bara is used to describe the creation, not only of men, but also of women. Adam and Eve created in God's image. That is followed in the very next verse with the blessing. So God blessed them so that they could be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth for the glory of God. Now I have one last evidence, I think, that this is the pinnacle of all of the created order, and that is the way God ends this. It's in the final day of creation that God's perspective on creation goes from good to very good. Here, the harmony and the perfection of the complete, completed heaven, heavens and earth expressed most significantly in the pinnacle of creation, the creation of mankind now most clearly reflects the perfections of the creator. It was very good. But the creation account does not stop here. We move on to Chapter 2, when we look at the first three verses, there's one last day to consider. Verses 1 and 3. After forming and filling the heavens and the earth, God finally rests on day 7. Let's look at Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. I made it holy because on it God rested from all the work that he has done. So here God rests. I do not believe that God rests in the sense of recuperating from being strained or fatigued at all. I don't believe that's the case, but he rests simply in the sense of he ceases to work. On this final day, God chooses again to bless something. And here on this day, it's the seventh day. Because on this day, he ceased from all of his work. It was all completed. It was all finished. In Genesis 1 and 2, God gives an amazing account of the gracious, sovereign hero God who builds the entire world in six days and then rests. Men and women, this is the true story of creation. That's the proper worldview that has God in his rightful place and as human beings in their place. And that's what the covenant community of Israel must believe about the origins of this world. But this is also something that's absolutely essential for us as followers of Jesus Christ as well. 
In John Calvin's massive work entitled The Institutes, he begins with a simple statement. He, be, he begins by saying that there are two essential things that believers must know. Want to hear what they are? Two essential things believers must know. We must know who God is and we must learn who we are. If we do not understand these origins in line with Genesis 1 and 2, it will distort our worldview and it will affect our lives. Just speak for a brief moment here to our children. Boys and girls, you will likely grow up in a world where people will suggest that this world came into being or evolved over time. But that is not what God's word says. No, a powerful God made all of this around you, made the entire planet, everything in the universe. And the text of scripture says, boys and girls, that he was happy when he made you. He said that that was very good. This book tells you the world's story and why you exist. You know, as I was reflecting upon the importance of this creation account for myself this week, it's been important to me as well to consider, you know, what, what does this mean? Why is this important that God created it all? He formed it all in six days and he rested. The mankind is set as an image and likeness of God to give dominion over the world. Why is, why is that important? Well, this week, the way God has used it in my life has reminded me that every breath I have that I'm given as a follower of God in Jesus Christ is for divine glory. He is so much bigger than me. He is the creator. I'm the creature. I hope to honor him when things are going well in life and even when things are going difficult. This is the real story of creation, men and women. You can base your life on it. God said it, and it was so. It's as simple as that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to work through Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 in this creation account. It's been a delight, Father, to not only look at the holy text of Scripture, to examine it so we can know it, but then to take a step back this week for myself and to think about why this is important and what it means for my human existence. Father, as we talked about how God created everything, how God created men and women to exercise dominion over this world in his likeness, in his image, I'd pray for anyone here today who is perhaps themselves going through some sort of difficult experience. Perhaps they're trying to find their own place. These, these are some of the biggest questions of life, Father. And there may be some here today who are wrestling through some of the biggest questions of life. And so, Father, I pray that you would just help them as well as they wrestle through these things to realize that there is a creator God and that he loved them and he sent his son Jesus to save them from their sins. 
pray that you would encourage others as well as I've been encouraged this week by the fact that God said it, and it was so. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today and as we sing our final song, that we would rejoice in the God of creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.